Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Muriel is one of those people that redeem social media for me. When I first found her account, she was so warm and welcoming to the food photography community. She even generously agreed to take her own time to get on the phone and talk to me about her experiences as a brand photographer and recipe developer. That conversation was pivotal in my decision to go in a slightly different direction and start this podcast. As I saw Muriel post more and more about her childhood in Congo, her transition to Canada, being vegan, and the love and admiration she has for her mother, I knew I wanted to have her on as a podcast guest. Given the limited knowledge that I had of her life experience, I was shocked when she sent over neither a Congolese or a Canadian dish. Instead, I received a recipe for vegan shuba, a version of a classic Ukrainian dish. Quick note before we begin, this episode will focus on her story and this dish, but Friday, I'll be releasing an episode that is solely our conversation about veganism. I am equally excited to share both of these episodes. Really thrilled to be talking to you again. And so am I. And what you've been doing with your podcast is so inspiring. So oh, I'm really excited. I'm excited. So let's get started. We should um, just start with the fact that you gave me a recipe for a vegan shuba, correct? Is that how I say it? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So just real quickly describe what a shuba is, the shuba that you grew up eating, and then what a vegan shuba is. Okay. Yeah. So basically a shuba is kind of like a layered salad. Mm -hmm. So it basically consists of layers of different types of vegetables as well as some mayo. And traditionally it has um, the first layer at the bottom of the plate is a smoked fish. So it's either like smoked salmon or smoked mackerel or even a cured fish. That's also a possibility. Mm-hmm. And then there are layers of uh, grated beets that are cooked. Um, mm-hmm. That's an important part. It's not just raw beets. Yes. Um, yeah. So beets, um, carrots, potatoes, and yeah. But there's a lot of variations. It's one of those recipes that a lot of people adapt based on what they personally like. I know some people like to put pickles in them or uh, even other vegetables, even fruits. Like my mom has made this shuba with apples in the past. So it's not a very like strict recipe. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, this is a Russian recipe. Uh, Well, actually, it's a recipe that can be found in Russia and in Ukraine. Uh, People in both countries can eat it. Yeah. So you can find it in both uh, countries. Okay. Okay. So from what you've shared of yourself in your childhood, which I have gathered, I thought was in Congo, I was I was shocked. (laughs) I was thinking I was going to get a traditional African recipe (laughs) and then I got a (laughs) so uh, okay so let me see with this new information if I'm counting correctly the influences the cultural influences on your life and food so so far I count the Republic of 
Congo. Yes. So I was born in Congo and stayed there until I was eight years old. And then in 2002, uh, my family, so me, my mom, my dad and my young, my brother, we immigrated to Canada. Um, And then we've been living here ever since. And now I have an extra brother. So we're three kids. And uh, yeah, we basically grew up. Most of our childhood was here in Canada. But I have a lot of memories still from Congo. From Congo. Okay. And then the whole um, Russian-Ukrainian influence, that is from your mother, who I gather is Ukrainian? It's from my mom. So my grandparents, uh, uh, my grandpa, my mom's dad, Mm -hmm. is uh, Russian and so is my grandma. So both of them are Russian, but my grandpa moved to Ukraine at a young age and he grew up there. So they all grew up in um, Ukraine and my mom was born in Ukraine. So she's traditionally of like a Russian descent, but she grew up in Ukraine. So that's her home. I see. So what languages do you speak? So my fir- the first language that I learned was French. So that's my main and first language. And then I learned Russian from my mom and my dad, actually, because my dad also speaks Russian. Okay. Um, and then I learned English when I was about 13 years old. Okay. So tell me about your mom's route from Ukraine to Congo. That must have been... So first of all, is it <laughs> correct to say Congo or the Republic of Congo? I always say Congo. Okay. I'm not sure which is the, the official correct way, but the thing is that there's two Congo. There's the Republic of Congo, and then there's the Democratic Republic of Congo. Oh. So there's two in Africa, and I'm from the Republic of Congo, which is the smallest one. And that Congo is actually known as Congo Brazzaville, and the other one is known as uh, Congo Kinshasa. There's two different ones. That's why it might be a bit confusing. Okay. Is this where it's divided politically or was it divided by a war or are they not even in the same spot on the map? They're actually very close to each other, mm-hmm. but I don't know, to be honest, uh, what was the division that happened. I know there's a lot of um, conflicts there. So, yeah, I'm okay. sure it had to do with that. Okay, I see. Okay, so, yeah, how did your mom make it there from Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, so that's a crazy story. Uh-huh. Um, she went to university in what was known back then as the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, so that was in the 80s. And uh, my dad actually traveled from Congo to the Soviet Union, where he met my mom in university. At the time, there were a lot of like foreign students that were actually from Africa or even from Asia that would study in the Soviet Union. And it was kind of this program that was put in place. And then so they fell in love. And then my dad uh, went back to Africa. and My mom stayed in Ukraine for a couple of years. And then in the 90s, my mom met my dad back in Congo and they lived there until 2002. So she lived in Africa for about 10, 10 plus years. They didn't get married until she went back to Congo. I think they got married before that. They got married oh. in Ukraine or like the Soviet Union. Oh. And then my dad flew to Congo and then maybe three, four years later, from what I can remember, uh, she met him in Congo. Wow. Because it was still a, a big thing, right, to, to leave 
her parents and her family behind. And I would have to say they didn't really approve of my mom's choice to do that. Oh, okay. But she still decided to do it and then moved to Africa. And they stayed there for, well, until 2002. And the main reason why they decided to come to Canada is because at that point they had two kids and they wanted to ensure that we had a better future. And um, yeah, to avoid being in, in the part of the world that's quite unstable in terms of mm-hmm. wars and mm-hmm. the, the politics. And mm-hmm. the reason why they chose Montreal in Canada is because it's a French-speaking city. So oh, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. the reason. Okay, so are there foods that you relate to being in Congo and that you relate to memories back there? Uh, yes, there are some. For me. Congolese food is very comforting. Mm. It's food that I I don't necessarily have as much now. And I still had when I was growing up. Yeah, it's food that is very like heartwarming. It's always it tends to be kind of decadent food. Oh and really? Yes. Mm. Well, I mean the one the food that I personally grew up eating <laughs> tend to be more like um, how would, this, would you say that? Rich. Mm. And um, yeah, so for example, one of the foods that for me is one of still one of my favorites is a dish called sakasaka or also known as pondu. So sakasaka is, is the name in my Congo, so the Republic of Congo, and pondu is the name that is known in the other Congo, the, okay. the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, yes, this dish is made out of um, leafy greens, so spinach um, and usually cassava leaves. There is uh, usually peanut butter, anyways, in the version that I used and it's kind of like this stew, and it's very rich and mm. thick. You let all the, the ingredients marinate for mm. a long time, and you tend to serve it with rice and, like, plantains, mm. and it's so, so good Mm. Did your mom or your dad do the cooking when you were growing up in Congo? Well, in Congo, we had somebody working for us. So there was somebody that would do the cooking for us most of the time. The only time that somebody would do the cooking out of my parents, it would be when we would have these dinners, uh, well, more these lunches on Sunday after church. All of my parents' friends would come to our home and then everybody would bring a dish and my mom would make some dishes uh, for those type of gatherings. Okay. But we had also a lot of like grilled fish. We lived uh-huh. like right by the ocean. So there would okay. always be fresh seafood, the most amazing fish, uh, amazing crab. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the food was so good. <laughs> and also an- another, mm-hmm. so there is this other thing that I grew up eating and it just kind of popped back into my head. And it's this thing called siki. <laughs> huh? And it's basically like this yogurt mix that used to be sold in these Ziploc bags. So you uh-huh. put the mix in a Ziploc bag and then you put it in the freezer. Uh-huh. And then these people would sell them on the streets and you can buy them frozen. You cut off the tip and you would just eat it like that. And I used to love this so much growing up. It was one of those things. And my mom could not understand it because (laughs) technically when you think of it, it's not super hygienic, you know, like buying yogurt like from a vendor on the street. I mean, she would still buy it for me and I used to really love it. One other thing which I loved and I still continue to love today, which was part of my childhood, was these sweet peanuts. So they're kind of like a lot of people have probably seen those red uh, candy coated peanuts at the store you know i, I don't i'm talking about no no 
They're no. like they're basically like a roasted peanut, and they have like this red, super bright red shell. I yeah. mean, I know about peanut M and M, so they have that thin layer of chocolate around them. But this is just the peanut and the candy. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So okay. It's a, a variation of that, but instead, it's not red on the outside, and the the sugar is kind of like it's more crystallized. It's not as smooth as the, the red coated ca- peanuts that you can find more often mm. in shops, even here in Canada. And I'm sure in the U.S. in some places. Mm-hmm. So I used to have those, and we would also buy them from this uh, these vendors on the street. Yeah, yeah, that's a big thing, isn't it? The street vendors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when your mom cooked on Sundays, did she always cook Ukrainian dishes, or did she try to make some of the Congolese dishes? From my memory, it was a lot more some of her traditional dishes. So kind of like the shuba that we're talking about today. Have you ever visited Ukraine? These are separate questions. Did your grandparents kind of eventually embrace your mom's choice and you guys? Do you have a relationship with them? Well, so I can start with the second question, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's that, probably what I, I kind of remember better. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so with time, the relationship between my grandparents and my mom actually got much better. They would speak quite regularly on the phone, even when we were in Africa. Um, and yes, I have visited Ukraine maybe four or five times. I haven't gone back ever since we came to Canada, though, which is something I really want to do uh, in uh, the near future. You do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. So what was that transition from Africa to Canada? Like, that's a massive transition. Yeah, it was a cultural shock, uh, I have to say. Um, First of all, just the cold. That aspect was something Mm. I didn't know what cold was until I came to Canada. Um, (laughs) I didn't know what snow was until I came to Canada. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I just, oh, you poor Uh, thing. (laughs) Yeah, it was very different. It was very, very different. It was hard because in Congo, we spoke French, right? So you would think that you move to Montreal and the transition would be smooth, right? Everybody speaks French. But the French here is quite different than the French in Congo. It's... um, the French in Congo is very similar to the French from France, whereas the French in Montreal... It's very different, I have to say. There are certain words that people here in Montreal use that I had never heard before in my life. Mm. And I remember I was, it was my first day in class and I started school about two weeks after everybody else. Mm -hmm. So everybody already knew each other and, you know, people kind of got into the rhythm of things. And then I came along and I was this little girl from Africa, hair all over the place, you know, Mm. like completely like from another planet and Mm. then there's were you the only girl of color in your class no there were a couple others but not a lot yeah but I was the one with the French accent and Mm. I was the right cursive when everybody wrote like with the letters detached Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Also, yeah, like I remember one boy started talking to me and I looked at him and I, for it took me a second to understand what he was trying to say to me because the accent is so different here mm. than what I uh, so that was a little bit tricky, I have to say. Wow. It, it was not the easiest transition, but things mm-hmm. fell into place and mm. eventually I found my place and it, it's good. When you go to school in a bilingual city, do they speak in both French and English in the school? Like, what's your math class in? 
Well, so basically how it works in Montreal, there are French and English schools. So if you go to a French school, everything's going to be in French, except I mean, if you have like an English class. Okay. In, in my school was in French. But um, if you go to an English school, everything would be in English and then you would have French classes. But there's a law here in Quebec that the people who are allowed to go to an English school are people that come from an English family only. So oh, okay. if you come from a French family or if you are an immigrant, you have to automatically go to high school in French and primary school as well. Okay. Now, are there equity issues associated with that? Or do you think you get pretty much the same education either type of school? I think the education tends to be similar. Uh, me, personally, the type, the biggest issue that I find is if, let's say, a child wants, is very good at French mm-hmm. and wants to learn English very, very well, and if their parents are French or if they're immigrants, they won't be able to go to an English school until after high school. Because the moment you finish high school, you can go to French or English. Yeah. So that's how like my English got very much, much better once I finished high school, because after high school, I decided to go to an English college and an English university. (laughs) Now there, of course, are English speaking immigrants also. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the English schools are less diverse or does it? Uh, no, but I think as an immigrant, you have to go to French, even if you're in- English speaking. I would have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's that is one of the laws because they want the immigrants and the kids of the immigrants to be French speaking. Wow. Yeah, it's intense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. So, so would you say that the language was harder or was it harder to find, to feel at home? It didn't take me that... Mm. I feel like the language I picked up on very quickly because at mm. the time I was eight years old, right? So yeah. still pretty, like, I understood how people talked and I just kind of replicated to what other people did. Yeah. Um, but it was just, yeah, I always kind of felt different, mm. even though at the, in that school, it was still somewhat diverse. Mm-hmm. I still felt like an outsider being an immigrant. There were really not that many immigrants at the time in that mm-hmm. particular school. Mm-hmm. Montreal as a whole is a city that ex- that is extremely diverse. It's probably one of the most diverse in Canada, mm-hmm. probably after Toronto. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people of from different parts of the world. But in the neighborhood where I lived and in that school at that time, the diversity was not very, very high. There were people mm-hmm. of different places, but it wasn't... As diverse now, it's funny because my mom lives in the same neighborhood mm-hmm. and my brothers have gone through that same school as I did. And now mm. it's completely different. There's a lot more diversity. And I would say like people who are originally from Montreal are probably the minority. Okay. <laughs> compared Interesting. To yeah. And it almost sounds like the issue wasn't as much that you were a little girl of color as much as that you were an immigrant. Exactly. I felt mm-hmm. more that aspect of it, again, because of the language, because of how I was. And, you know, in Africa, we had a life that was very active. I was a kid that was always running around, doing a bunch of different activities, always being outdoors, mm-hmm. being at the beach, climbing trees. And mm-hmm. I came here and it was it's completely different. Like we mm-hmm. didn't have a backyard. You know, you're sitting all day at school and you come back from school, you go home. 
it was just, yeah, it's a completely, it, it's a different way of life. And I also didn't necessarily feel the most comfortable taking part in like extracurricular activities because I felt a bit different. And mm. it just, a, it was a bit odd, but it was, yeah, it was mainly coming from the fact that I was an immigrant rather than a person of color. Mm, that's However, really interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say it's funny because things really shifted when I started high school because in high school it was not necessarily as much the fact that I was an immigrant because by then I was speaking like everybody else right. I was mm-hmm. you know just normal but I went to a high school that was primarily white and with very very few people of color and that was very difficult it was yeah I was just trying to find myself because I didn't really feel like I belonged because of the fact that you know, I'm of mixed mm-hmm. races and I'm a person of color. And yeah, it was a little bit tricky to find my place in high school, I have to admit. You feel like it eventually happened or did you just kind of muddle through and you're glad that it you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it did. Towards the, the last couple of years of high school, I eventually found my crowd and it was basically all the people of color plus a couple of you know, people mm-hmm. from Montreal. Uh, But yeah, we we created this group and we understood each other and that was really good. But I do have to say that my biggest, I guess, self-actualization moment and like an embracing of my whole history happened after high school. Mm. It was really when I went to CJEP, which is kind of like an equivalent of college in the United States. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there I came into this school that was very far from where I was uh, in high school. It's right in the middle of downtown. So there were people from everywhere. And that was so amazing. I remember just seeing people from like India, from Pakistan, from everywhere. And it just felt like for once I could just be me and not necessarily Mm. feel like I need to adapt to my surroundings. Mm. And then that's where like I really stepped into uh, me, I guess, mm. and embraced my identity. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it continues to be a struggle to this day? Or do you feel it's kind of a process you had to go through and then it came to completion? I think it is still something that I I, I work on. It's something mm. that is still part of my life because of the mm. fact that the, the people that I'm around always varies. Like I could be in a setting where I could be the only person of color and mm. then all over again, it's those feelings that can come back. But mm. I feel like I have those tools to really step away from that feeling and tell myself, like, you're not different than anybody else. Like, you're Mm -hmm. you, it's fine. You're going to be okay. And I'm Mm -hmm. much more quicker and I have better tools uh, to take away those, like, I guess, negative emotions Mm -hmm. and feelings. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like there are feelings that are, I guess, created by other people's responses or is it more of an internal thing for you or both for you? I think it, it could be a, a bit of both. The mm. internal aspect is more like before a situation happens, I start thinking, oh, okay, like, am I going to be the only person of color? Mm. Is is it going to be awkward? But then mm-hmm. the external is more like maybe people don't necessarily expect certain things of me because mm-hmm. I'm a person of color. Mm. So, for example, I'm very much an overachiever and mm-hmm. I do a lot of things and I was very good at school and mm-hmm. You know, when with my work and what I do, I tend to really go above and beyond what is asked of me. Mm-hmm. I try to anyway. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like people might not necessarily expect that of me mm. because of who I am, I guess, what I look or. Mm. Mm. 
Well, I'm sorry that you've experienced that. And I'm glad that you have so many tools to work through that. To yeah. Me. And it's really okay. Honestly, I would not change my experience of life for anything mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. I have to say it has made me the person I am today. It's made me very, very strong. And mm-hmm. as you said, like it's given tools that I didn't, I don't think I would have developed if maybe I wasn't put in these situations. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm honestly, I would not change anything in my story. I'm very glad it happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very at peace. Like it's not like this constant battle <laughs> in my head or anything. Right. Every day. Like, and I actually find that very hopeful. I, I'm white, you know, so it's not something that I had to go through. Now I'm starting to walk through it with my kids of color. And uh, I understand it's a privilege that I never had to walk through that. But I find it hopeful that you're saying, yeah, it was a struggle. But man, I came out on the other side stronger. You feel like, yeah, I was able to make it to a point of confidence and where I can, I guess, project an identity out that's stronger than the perceptions people bring to the table. Yeah, exactly. I think you've put it really beautifully. And I think going back to a little bit what you said, the fact that now you kind of have to go uh, through that with uh, your boys who are boys of color, well, some of them. (laughs) And um, my mom has been one of the most important person for me in like being there. And for her, there were a lot of things that she was completely unaware of because she's a white person, right? Yeah. And she really loved, well, loved, appreciated seeing new things and helped me going through these phases and like helping me accept myself for who I am. That's unbelievably encouraging to me. And this is great because I'd love to pivot the conversation to your mom because anytime, you know, you talk about your mom on social media and it's always glowing. Just tell me a little bit about your mom um, in general. What is it that you admire so much about her? Oh my God, where do I start? My mom Mm. is the most incredible, strong woman I know. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people say that, but I, I can't say anything else about my mom. She is such an amazing person. She has an incredibly kind heart. She's Mm. one of the most devoted person I know. Mm. She is so encouraging. She is a mom that doesn't judge. Uh, She always had her arms and her ears open to anything that we would want to talk to her about. There was never something that I felt really uncomfortable talking to my mom about Mm -hmm. just because she would always welcome me and always be willing to listen and to try and understand. Even if it were things that she didn't necessarily agree with, the fact Mm -hmm. that she was always there and gave us the space to express ourselves Mm -hmm. and to share our our opinions and our stories with her. And she was always respectful and so loving through it all. I mean, stronger, uh, stronger than anything. I hope, I wish I could be, I guess. Mm, I'm sure that you are so much more like your mother than you realize you are. You know, you speak with such a confidence and such a kindness at the same time that is so hard to achieve. And when I say you're an attractive person on social media, of course you're beautiful. But what I really mean is people are attracted. They want to kind of be in your circle because you create a warmth and you radiate kindness and generosity, you know, and like you said, like just um, ability to listen. So I'm sure that you are really in your mom's image. She must be so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you think of some examples of some times where you came home with some experience that she wasn't prepared for or didn't know to expect and then she was able to respond with support? I I have a very, very clear memory. 
I was about 14, 15 years old. And I remember I was like on Facebook, I think mm -hmm. at the time. And then a girl who was in one of my classes, <laughs> she messages me and she says something like, Muriel, do you ever brush your hair? Mm. And to me, it was like, I don't even know why it touched me so much, but I felt so, I guess, ashamed mm. of my hair and so angry of the fact that she would even ask that question and she wouldn't think that potentially it could be something that was hard for me. Uh, that was something that I struggled with because in high school at the time, I struggled a lot with my hair. I had no idea how to style it. I had no idea what to do with it. And it was very difficult because I always felt like not only was my skin color setting me aside apart from other people, but so was my hair because my hair was always curly. It always had a mind of its own. It, it you know, it did whatever it wanted. Mm. And the fact that she asked me, do you even brush your hair? It was kind of like she reinforced that idea that to other people, my hair is very different. It's not mm. normal. And therefore, you probably don't treat it the same way as we do. And that was really, really hard. And then I remember I started crying and mm. crying. <laughs> and my mom said like, Muriel, she just doesn't understand. She just doesn't get it. And just that, like, it wasn't much. She just gave me a hug and she just told me that. And it just put everything into perspective because it's true. She just didn't understand. She had no idea. She didn't necessarily do it out of malice. Maybe she did. I don't know. But probably she just didn't have any knowledge about curly hair. Mm. And yeah, yeah, my mom was there for me and she she reassured me and she she was there. Mm. and it's just that you know like a mm -hmm. parent that's there like really mm. there and my mm. mom was always that mm. she was willing to just enter in and walk with <laughs> you and whatever you experienced yeah exactly and mm -hmm. that one thing too is my mom was not necessarily the type of mom who would push a certain idea onto me she would as I kind of said before give me the space to understand things better for myself mm-hmm and um, yeah, she would give that, I mean, a lesson or a sentence that helps me get a better idea of the situation or have a clearer vision of what just happened. Mm -hmm. But she wouldn't necessarily tell me super clearly, okay, this is what she was trying to do. Like, you have to understand yeah. it in this way. That's not how my mom was. It sounds like she's a woman of few words rather than many. Yes, it's funny because... I remember growing up, sometimes I would wish she would do more. Mm. I, I, because sometimes it was just like, Muriel, you, you just have to let it pass over your head. You don't don't dwell on it. And sometimes it was like, mom, can, how can you say not to dwell on it? This is something that is important <laughs> to me. I, I can't just like brush it over. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> but yeah. those are the, the most important lessons, you know, sometimes just have to let things pass and things will fall into place. And, and uh, she modeled that for you. So you were able to believe her because you saw her do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she was very strong. My mom was a very, well, is a very strong woman. There's a lot of things that my mom has gone through a lot of difficult times and through it all, my mom keeps being the rock for everyone, keeps being devoted and loving and caring. And Tell me about grocery shopping with your mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> grocery shopping with my mom. Uh, the one activity we've done over a million times together. It was always 
so fun. My mom would always find a way to make it exciting because she would find like the best deals at different places. Like we would have like a day where we would just go to four or five different shops and discover what are the things that aren't special. And then we would find like these deals that are like never before seen. And we'd be so excited to try foods that we'd never tried before, but it was like 50% off. (laughs) Wow. Not only was she you know, saving money and teaching you to be a good consumer, but you were really expanding your palate. Yes, I definitely was. And plus we were also doing exercise. Well, my mom doesn't drive. So we would go by bus or by foot. So we walked a lot when we were, when I was young. So yes. And through it all, I did expand my palate and I discovered foods that I had never tried. And yeah, growing up, we would eat so much different things here in Canada. Well, yeah, I'm curious about that. So when you left, you know, you had to, there were so many things you had to adapt to. How was it adapting the food? Yes, it was very different. At that time, it was like early 2000, right? Like a lot of kids were eating lots of processed foods. So um, things like Dunkaroos, I don't know what yeah, uh-huh. Dunkaroos are. Yeah, I do. <laughs> but yes. I've never Dunkaroos. had one, but I know what they are. <laughs> Yeah, those things. My mom would buy that. She would buy um, a lot of like for lunches, we would have frozen meals, which were not great. But some of them, I actually remember a couple that were some of my favorite like lunches I ever had. My mom is loves whippets and she <laughs> discovered love for whippets when we came to Canada. So that was her cookie of excellence. Yes, but the good thing, though, is that most of the time for dinner, my mom would always make a complete meal. So we would have either rice or mashed potatoes with some type of meat and always vegetables and a salad. So we would always have veggies and we always ate like still somewhat balanced. Yeah. So she had to kind of adapt to uh, the food here. But my mom is a very creative person in the kitchen. She would make things like invent recipes, look at recipes, modify them, create something new out of it. And then as time went on, some of the foods that she created became classics in our household. So for example, my mom makes like the best spaghetti sauce. Uh Uh-huh. So it's a spaghetti sauce that is loaded with vegetables. Like she puts mm. like basically the entire fridge in the spaghetti sauce. Yeah. <laughs> she cleans out a spaghetti stone soup. Yeah. yeah. Is there a Canadian food culture or is it more like the U.S. we bring in, you know, everybody brings in what they yeah. came with? I think there's a lot of that, uh, especially in some of the cities in Canada that are very diverse. Because of the the cultural diversity, the foods here are very influenced by many different cultures. But also in Montreal, or Quebec in general, which is the province, there are some foods that are typical to Quebec. So, for example, one thing you might have heard of is poutine. Mm, yeah. I don't, do you know what? Yeah. So it's basically fries with gravy and this squeaky cheese on top. This is like traditional. Oh no, I didn't know Quebec. about the cheese. Oh. I thought I thought Putin was defined by if they're um cooked in if the fries are cooked in duck fat or not. Oh no. No. No, it's really like the, the whole dish. Like there has to be fries, gravy, and the cheese on top. I guess I could go with fries and gravy or fries and cheese, but gravy and cheese. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not 
um, I'm not buying it. But you have to try it because people love poutine. It's 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 huge. It's huge okay. here. There's also meat pies, which are okay. known as tourtières. There's also a dish called a sugar pie, which is basically a pie, and then the filling is like a maple syrup kind of cream. Oh, <laughs> it's that sounds very good. Wow. Okay. So going back to the cooking and your mom and her cooking, let's go, go back to that. So you chose to pursue a career in food, Mm -hmm. which definitely seems like part of the way your mother influenced you. Uh, yes, partly, but, but, but not yes, fully. Totally. Yeah, oh, not really. Okay. <laughs> so for sure, my love for cooking and food stems from the home and like spending time with my mom in the kitchen. However, the career in food, I think, kind of chose me. I don't think I chose the career in food. It's well, not at first. And now, obviously, it's a choice that I make every single day. But it's something that I kind of fell into because I studied in college and in university in business. So my plan was once I graduate to go and work for business or in marketing or something like that. I was not at all planning to be in a creative, quote unquote creative field and especially not in the food industry yeah so basically what happened is that um as I said like I always loved cooking I would spend a lot of time trying out new recipes discovering new flavor profiles and testing them at home during weekends in high school and in college and even in university Mm. and then in the last year or so of university one of the trends that I noticed on Instagram was that people were starting to post pictures of their food. And because I already loved food Mm -hmm. so much, Mm -hmm. and I also, at that point, I had had my my first DSLR camera, Mm -hmm. I decided to start taking pictures of my food. Mm -hmm. And so I started posting pictures on Instagram, like my friends were into it. And then one day I get an email from a guy I went to college with and he basically asked me if I wanted to take pictures for the social media account of a company that he just started. And it was an ice cream company. So at first I was like, oh my God, this is not for me. I cannot do this. This is so hard. It's impossible. Like I'm not that good. You know, all the excuses, right? Mm. (laughs) And then I, I said, might as well, I'll just give it a try for one month or two months and see how it goes. It's just like extra little income on the side. So I started doing that for him. And I remember some of the emails that he was sent back to me and he'd be, he would say things like, Michael, can you make the photos more exciting? Can you make the photos more fun, more cool? And I, I, I remember thinking, what am I doing? Like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. Do you this. think he even, those are such vague terms. It doesn't say colorful or bright or um, story. Like there's such vague terms. I huh. Do you think he even knew what he was looking for? I don't think so. Mm. <laughs> that is the thing. I think it's something that with time, because now I'm still working with that company, which with that company, which is kind of funny. It's been now, it's going to be four years. Wow. Yeah, three years that I've been with him. But yeah, I kind of helped develop the brand image for his company because at first he was just saying these things, that, but he didn't know concretely what it meant and what he was looking for. But with time, as my skill also mm-hmm. evolved, we're able to to create a, a brand image for, for the company that is still works today. Uh by the time uh, I was done university, I was still kind of unsure what I wanted to do. I was 
kind of working a bunch of dif- on a bunch of different things at the same time. But then I told myself, why not just try and make this a thing? You know, why not try to work with companies and have a portfolio online, show what I can do um, and create content for companies? I'm already doing it for one. I'm sure other companies would be interested. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. And uh, wow. today I'm a photographer and recipe developer and all the things. <laughs> yes, a, an amazing, amazing photographer. Hey there, listeners. It was at this point in the conversation that Muriel and I began to discuss the vegan lifestyle that she is chosen and she champions. And this was such a wonderful conversation. Uh, she made me think about so many things in such a different way that I didn't want to cut any of it. And knowing that we were getting to the end of my goal time for an episode, I decided decided to just keep the whole conversation and put it into a bonus episode that I will be releasing this Friday. So I want to talk about this vegan shuba recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said it's very important to the integrity of the recipe that these vegetables are cooked. Um, and so tell me about that. Yes, because I find the recipe is so delicate mm-hmm. and creamy and soft it's not like a typical salad because all the vegetables are cooked when you have a bite of it it almost melts in your mouth and that's why it's so important to cook them yes Mm -hmm. so at the beginning of the call you mentioned that you use seaweed nori to replace what usually would be cured fish um, on the bottom layer and uh that that wasn't quite working for me so how small do you cut your nori I would say half a centimeter by half a centimeter or like one centimeter by one centimeter. So very small. Yeah, it's all pretty small. Okay, that makes so much sense because mine was, I I cut it way bigger and it was kind of like getting pulled out by my fork and it just wasn't working. So, and then you soak it in, um, you called it tamari? Uh, Yes, tamari. Tamari, I had to look that up and it's a wheat-free soy sauce. And that's the one I use at home, but it's basically like soy sauce. It's gluten-free soy sauce. Okay. And you just use it because you happen to prefer to be gluten-free. It's not part of being vegan or you don't think it has a... Um, um, no, I just tend to use it because I like... The flavor is slightly different to soy sauce, okay. but not super different. It's just I tend to have that one at home. I'm not personally gluten-free, but it's just, that's the one I have at home. And I just wrote it like that. So I I did use soy sauce. Oh, okay. Uh, but that's fine. Like, you don't feel like I really have to use the um, tamari to really. No. I, okay. Maybe what you could do is instead of using five tablespoons of soy, I would do four tablespoons of soy and one tablespoon of water because I find tamari is slightly less salty than soy. Okay. That's really good to know. Now, speaking of cooking the vegetables, I actually really loved the approach that you cook them all together with a bay leaf. Mm-hmm. And I did find mm-hmm. that their flavor was a little mild actually I find the beet flavor tend to be the strongest if let's mm-hmm. say you if you were to make the same recipe and roast the beet in your oven instead of boiling it the flavor would probably be more strong than mm. by boiling it yeah definitely I just had two other questions about why you specified these things so one is you had me cook the vegetables the beet the carrot and the potatoes unpeeled one of the main reasons is so that the colors don't change 
Like mm. if let's say the beet is peeled, the carrot will probably be orangey purple and the potato also. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. And then when you make the mayonnaise layer, you mix the mayonnaise with filtered water. Is there a reason why you specified that it needs to be filtered or just? Oh, no, I just wrote it like that because uh, in Montreal, we have issues with the lead in our water. So that's why we're filtering the water. Okay. (laughs) No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I, I just enjoy talking to you so much. I really don't want the interview to end, but we are at the end of the questions, I guess. (laughs) Oh, well, thank Thank you so much, Becky, for inviting me and for giving me a little bit of a platform to share about my story and like what has happened to me and I guess some of the the lessons I've learned along the way and some of the choices I made. Maybe they can help other people. I hope so. Well, you're a real credit to your mother and you're a total inspiration to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Muriel. Just a reminder that I'll be releasing a bonus episode this Friday, which is the portion of our conversation where Muriel discusses her path to and experiences with veganism. This was such an enlightening conversation for me, and I'm so looking forward to sharing it with you. Also, if you'd like to find more vegan recipes from Muriel, look at her beautiful photography, or listen in on the topics she explores on YouTube, you can find her anywhere, her website, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube under Muriel Banakisa, which is M-U-R-I-E-L-L-E, and then last name, B-A-N-A-C-K-I-S-S-A. You can also find all of this information and her vegan shuba recipe on my website, thestoriedrecipe.com. One last thing until Friday. Do you mind taking a moment to subscribe to the podcast? It helps me personally, and it guarantees you won't miss this bonus episode with Muriel. Until then, have a great week, my friends.